Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone-Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Annie Highwater. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies in Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall back on Coming Up for Air. And today we have um, three co hosts it's myself. Kayla Solomon and Dominique Simon Levine. Um, so Kayla Solomon has a group on um, through the Allies in Recovery website, and Dominique is the creator of the Allies in Recovery website. I know, clap, 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 right? Um, so this week we decided we would kind of continue on with the, our last podcast and still talk about um, something Dominique calls first thought, second thought. And then I happen to call it um, how we do it is we say there's an event, there's a thought, there's an emotion, and then it's time to take a break. And then there's a response. Kayla, do you have anything that you call it in particular? I call it first thought, second thought. Okay, Kayla, first thought, second thought. Mind. Maybe it's, it's, yeah, it's probably because um, I kind of invented it myself, if that makes sense. Like I, um, I don't have any training in it, really. I just was like, okay. Yeah, you deconstruct. Yeah, yeah, something happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, how about you ladies? Have you... Have you noticed yourself doing this at all since our last podcast? I have to say I have. I and first thought, second thought is such a such a good shorthand for it because that's exactly what you have to pay attention to. First thought, second thought, and I was able to use it. I, I know about it. Like I said last week, I I learned about it quite late in my thirties, but and I've been trying to pay attention ever since. And with the help, I have to say, with a little antidepressant, I think I can begin to slow myself down in order to be able to catch the first thought, second thought, because there's a pause in there, right? There's the, whoop, look, you have to look at that first thought. Whoop, that's a first thought. You have to go on and say, oh, that's a first thought. You need to move on to your second thought, which is much more conscience, conscious and reasoned. And I was applying it not to negative things, which... I, I am more in a habit of now, but to positive things. So I had given myself 45 minutes to go rest in my room. I closed the doors, animals on the bed, everything should be quiet, phones under the pillows. And my first thought is, you should be up. You know, those are all my first thoughts. And so I used that recognition to go, oh no, you get total permission. This is quiet Zen time. And I was able to stop the progression of the list making and the you musts and the do's and the everything that feels like it's just so close and torturous all the time. So that was really helpful. Yeah, I I have had a few instances. I And I guess 
I don't know if I would necessarily call them negative. I think I would call them more a part of life, just interaction in my life um, and some things that I was doing and a little bit of conflict came up and immediately I got that uneasy feeling and it was like, you know, okay, what's wrong? What's going on? And I, and I kind of got flooded with these emotions and kind of chaotic thoughts is the only way I can describe it. And I can I have to force myself to take a break. So I'm like, okay, okay. Just take that break. Just calm down, let it settle for a while. And then you can start thinking, you can start really kind of processing it and thinking, but don't react. Don't do anything until you've done that. Right. Until you've really kind of thought it through, um, in a more logical way. And I find, I, I find that if I give myself the space to think that way, um, one of a couple of things happens. I calm down and if it's still kind of bothering me, then I know I need to address it in some way. But sometimes I calm down and I think, you know what, this really doesn't bother me, <laughs> right? This is, uh, and, and I should just let this go. Let it, let it just go because it's really not that important um, and move on to the next thing or, or whatever it is. But I think I use it a lot and I'm just not even aware that I'm doing it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I use it in work a lot. We, we're virtual. So there are like hundreds of emails flying all day long, every day between the team. And not everybody writes beautiful, gentle emails, and including myself. And, and I'll, I'll open an email and it'll feel like I've been sucker punched, like, ugh. I skim it and it's sucker punch and I close it and I go, you know, under the covers. But if I, if I, if I don't personalize it, if I, if I can get past the sucker punch and I can, I can go read it again, nine times out of 10, I have read it the most negative, wrong, personalistic way I could have imagined. I took it all, I take it all in first. And usually, as you say, chaos, then confusion, you don't know, overwhelm you, you're thrown, right? And, but it takes me less time to go, okay, read it again. Oh, you see, it wasn't so bad. And it's just them being them. Isn't that interesting? Kayla taught me this a long time ago. Isn't that interesting? Be curious, be observant. Isn't that interesting what they're doing, what they're doing, right? Not what you're feeling, what they're doing and how it's making you feel, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a difference there. And you, again, if you tease it apart, you can breathe. You can, you can take a breath. Right. Uh, that's my other, you know, little um, way of saying things is that you're not the center of the universe. Um, because I, I think that there's two things that get us in trouble. Number one is that we feel like we're the center of the universe and everything that other people do is a reflection on us or it's about us. And then the other thing is that if you're in this situation where you have a loved one, then we, you kind of make yourself into this godlike person where you have this superhuman ability to influence their life and change the outcome, which I also think is not real. Um, and so, so to me, both of them, it's like, 
in AA, they talk about humility being being right sized. You're not too big and not too small. And just like Dominique said that, excuse me, part of that is that it's about being that the other person has their own life. They have their own path and they have their own situation that's going on that you're a part of, but you are not the center of their universe, even if they love you. So how do you get space? And space is, it, I guess the theme here is space because first thought, second thought is about getting mental space. It's like, literally you're taking a pause. Like, for, oh, that's my first thought, that's interesting. Let me sit down and see what that means and sit with it. And then the other part is if you're not the center of the universe, you're giving the other person space so that they, you're, and, and one of the things that I say all the time is you have to give the person the dignity of their own process. Um, because if you don't do that, if you're getting so involved that you're intervening beyond where you should, then what happens is it's a very disrespectful position. And the message that you're giving is that you don't trust them, you don't believe in them, and that they don't know what they need. And it, even if they're acting in a way that you don't feel good about, they still deserve the dignity of their own process. But I also want to bring this up because this is connected with the gut thing. Um, Let's tie it all together. Well, um, I before you move on to the gut thing, and then I'm, I'm going to say, take it away, Caleb. But I 100% agree with you. Um, and we may use, like in rest, we use different words to convey that message. But yeah, I, I think that um, for me in my process with my son and learning about substance use disorder, I started to realize that um, he's not doing this to me, right? And boy, oh boy, how self-centered I am to think right. that he is, right? That he's, that I am, you know, the, the center of all of this and that he's doing this to me. And it was really trying to put myself back when I was a kid. Right. And when I did things, you know, even as a teenager, was I in my head going, oh, I can't wait to piss off my mother. No, I, I wasn't. I wasn't even thinking about her at the time. Right. Um, and so kind of coming to that realization that, oh, he's not doing this to me. In fact, he's doing it to himself. And there's something going on inside of himself. And then the other thing, Kayla, what you said, which I think is a huge, huge point is, which is a part of why a lot of families or why I did things with my son was the fear that, um, uh, how, do I, how do I say this? The fear of the mistake is a part of the driving force because the stakes are so high with substance use disorder that it's really hard to make space for that um, learning process, right? Because the mistake could be so devastating um, that it's very difficult to face as a mom or a dad or even a spouse, um, a brother, a sister, it's really difficult to face that and kind of gaining that confidence um, was really difficult to do, but it wasn't until I did kind of get kind of get to the point where, you know what, 
I just can't anymore. And I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, um, hope that it's going to turn out for the best and it might not. Um, but also, uh, uh, so what you're saying, this idea of allowing for that process for the other person's process and actually how disrespectful it is to not allow for that process. And I often say this, that when I wasn't letting my son learn about what was going to work for him, I was crippling him. Yes. I and was, that's a terrible message. Right. And, you know, the other thing about that is that I have a very hard time with the word mistake because I don't believe in it. I think that there's thing like I was talking to somebody who's dealing with substance use yesterday and I'm like, I don't believe in mistakes. I believe the 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 failure or the difficulty is when something happens and you don't learn for, from it or you don't change because of it. And that's the issue. It's not that it's a mistake. I don't believe in mistakes. I think that we try things and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I think that that's part of the, um, the thinking that gets us in trouble is that there's this, and this goes back to the gut. So I think we're back to this, the gut thing. Like, I know I'm supposed to do this thing. This is the right thing. And how do we know that it's like, and that's, that's the gut issue that I feel it's like a lot of times, and this is my beef with the word, follow your gut. A lot of times what our gut, which to me is solar plexus, is this sensation of like, really, if you're in trauma and have this situation, it's dread. It's not gut, it's dread. It's this over and over situation of like, oh my God, something terrible is going to happen. I'm, there's something I'm supposed to do. What am I supposed to do that's right? And then you just move forward, whether it's right or not, because you have no idea. And I believe that there's another part of us that's not a gut thing, but it's a knowing. And the knowing is different than following your gut. Gut is habitual. Gut is trauma. Gut is history. Gut is like what I would call the ego, where it's like this experiential thing that you carry around that tells you what to do and not do. And the problem with the gut is that it's it's based on trauma and wounding and your personal experiences, which are very limiting, as opposed to this knowing piece, which is a higher level. It's it's what they would call in DBT wise mind, where you step back from something and you have a, a, there's a once again, the space. The space is what gives you the knowing, not when you're in the middle of it. When you're in the middle of it, I don't trust my gut at all because it's almost always based on fear. And so if I'm coming from fear, it does, it never works out. So, so, so I, I think actually, um, I think that we're in agreement, but I do say the gut is important. And I also feel that, um, and so, so my understanding of the gut, right. Getting those gut feelings. I agree with you. Absolutely. It's fear. It's frustration. Um, it's and it's from historical experiences with this particular person. I totally do. I do not deny. Um, I do believe that um, that is what gut is. But I also think that I have to pay attention to it. And, and I'll just explain why. I have to pay attention to it because 
if my gut is doing that, if it's, if I'm starting to experience these feelings and emotions, then something's going on and I have to pay attention to it. It doesn't mean I have to react to it, right? In fact, for me, what it means is I've got to step back and calm down so that I can respond to it. Exactly. But that's the, that's the space piece. The space piece is Part of what we're all describing here is the knowing of yourself, the, the getting to know yourself in a different way so that and, and, and I there's this other thing that we need to know is we need to know our original wounds. We're getting in the psychological piece yeah, here, yeah, but yeah. we need to know our original. wounds. So what happens is the way I describe original wounds is that when you're in the most horrible position there's this banner that goes across, which is the banner you play that goes across your skyline every single time you're in a difficult position. It's like, I'm not good enough. Um, it's uh, it's it, it always is an I statement, by the way, but it's always negative. And it's I'm not good enough. I'm alone. It's I have to do this myself. I'd be better off with if I they'd be better off without me, whatever you every everybody knows their own banner of wounding. And that wound often gets triggered by the anxiety. Okay. It's like, you know, you're in a bad position and your wound comes up. And I will tell you, if you want to operate in the this most dysfunctional way you can imagine, let your gut wound, wound. Yeah. R- r- run the day. It's like, I'm alone. You see? And then what happens is you will look around and your life completely supports your belief system because yeah. you're looking at things in that particular way. So that's what happens. And it's our most dysfunctional self. And I, I totally, and by the way, yeah, it totally gets played out in relationships. Right. OK, so if you have somebody who's difficult that you're dealing with, they will trigger this with you in, on a regular basis. And this is why I have an issue with the gut, because your gut is that old wound saying, you see, I can't do anything right. You see, I'm alone. You see, I'm powerless, whatever. And so. If you're if you're in that, you that other person either wants to kill you or wants to run run away from you or thinks you're trying to oppress them or feel suffocated by you, whatever, controlled by you and or like they think you're pathetic. So so what happens is your job is to say, I'm in my stuff right now. Let me back up a little bit and take care of myself and not be putting this on you. Which I'm glad you brought that up. I, 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 we don't disagree at all. I, I totally agree with everything you said. I guess we're just, we're basically saying the same thing that I'm saying you do have to pay attention to the gut because something's wrong. And I often will say, okay, if I'm getting this experience in my gut and feeling in my body is, I know we describe it as the gut, but for me, oftentimes it might not be my stomach. It might be more in my esophagus and, and kind of in through there. But when I know I'm experiencing that, then I know maybe I need to put a boundary down somewhere, something, right? And it also is an indication to me, I need to step away. I, I, I'm not going to make a good decision based on what's going on because I can't think, I can't think straight. Um, so that's my perception of of the gut and why I say, no, no, you got to pay attention to it. Right. But you don't have to make decisions and you don't have to respond or react um, to it. Um, but also. 
Um, oh, there were a few things you said in there that I thought that, that were great. Um, uh, now I, it just kind of slipped my mind. What? Can I, can, I, can I jump back to the first conversation and maybe Lori, you'll remember your points. I just want to make a distinction um, with the idea that um, we have to allow our loved ones process. Uh, it's be disrespectful not to allow their process. You know, craft was designed in an era where prior to the opioid epidemic um, and really prior to even the methamphetamines making their way uh, west to east. So the level of risk that families are in is just much greater, real or not. I mean, more people will die from alcoholism than, than from opioid overdose. But having said that, we know families are watching their loved ones going out and, and shooting up fentanyl. And so the process, craft, if you apply craft to that situation, craft would say, allow the process if the risk isn't too great. If you see danger, right. don't allow the process, step in. There's plenty of times in the future where, where the, the risk will be lower and you can allow the process and this this feedback, this learning feedback that we're talking about can, can, can continue. But right now, this danger right now is too great. And so I, and, 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 and while we're on audio and online um, in videos and stuff, it's extra important that we pay attention to uh, the danger in what we're talking about and, and, and for each family to know the situation well enough to be able to say, I can let this go. This is, I can accept the risk of this. I cannot accept the risk of that. And so I'm going to step in. So Dominique, let me ask you, what, when you say intervene, okay, because this is the question I always have. It's like, what do you mean if the risk is high, really high, and you, you've assessed that this is like an unacceptable risk? What, what's an intervention that you would describe? Well, I've had parents like send the father out the back door and, and, and pull the alternator plug from the truck so that the loved one can't go back out in the truck and drive. Um, you know, the, you call the police, you leave them in jail. You, I mean, it's, what is the safer thing to do if you, if, if, if the response is something that you have some control over, right? So, right, here's, right, and here's, here's a, I think a really good example of, you know, um, let's say, um, let's say dad, and it could be mom, uh, it could be either, let's say the breadwinner in the family is struggling with alcohol, right? And um, the, the, caretaker or maybe maybe the other in um the other spouse is staying home with the kids and raising the kids whatever the arrangement is in the house and the person that goes off to work is struggling with alcohol and uh goes out every friday night and just gets trashed with you know because he gets paid or she gets paid and everybody goes out for drinks on payday and um, this, or let's say it's Thursday, that's, that's the night, Thursday night, they all go out and they get drunk and mom or dad or whomever comes home 
um, and falls asleep in the, it, it, you know, a couple of scenarios, falls asleep in the driveway. Is that a safe thing for me to do to allow that person to sleep in the driveway? Well, you know, if we're in Florida, I might do it, right? But if I'm in Massachusetts, I'm not gonna do it because my loved one could freeze to death and die. Or, or what if every Thursday night they go out and they're drinking, they get sloshed and they never make it to work on Friday morning. They just don't make it to work and they're getting warnings. They're gonna lose their job. They're gonna lose their job. Do I go in and wake that individual up because I'm worried I'm not going to have the finances to pay for where our living, you know, our food to feed the kids. I mean, there, there are plenty of circumstances that that might not be a case um, that might not be where I want to stop going in and waking them up. Right. Let them suffer the consequences of their drinking the night before and let them just deal with it. That might be a, a you know, a, a case where I am going to go wake them up. But let's say Friday night they go out and they drink and Saturday we're running around um, with the kids, driving the kids to all their sporting events. That might be a place where I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to let the consequences kind of natural consequences kind of unfold. And I'm going to prepare myself, right, in a way that, you know, I will be the one uh, that gets the kids up and going and my loved one is going to miss um, the sporting event. And I know that they enjoy spending time with the kids and they're supposed to be coaching or what, whatever it is where that I can intervene in. But sleeping in the driveway, maybe, maybe not. Um, I'm going to weigh safety, you know, that, that kind of stuff, or maybe getting up and going to work. Well, you know what, I'm not in a position right now. I need the financial backing to keep us going. Is there another place that I can go ahead and start applying craft skills and allowing for natural consequences to happen? Um, so that maybe there'll be a little bit more motivation for change kind of thing. Well, and I think the key is what's the currency for the other person, because there's consequences for me, which is one thing. And then there's things that I think are consequences. And this is why I like the functional assessment. It's like you're actually sitting down and thinking about what are actual consequences, not what you think are consequences. Right. Like I was thinking, wow, that would be great for me not to have to go to the sporting events and sleep. In. Yeah, right. <laughs> that would not work for me. Right, but I agree with you. I, I agree with you on that. It has to be. It has to be negative consequence for them. Right? Right, for but them. you need to. Right. And part of the this is the knowing again. It's like right. what is the truth? All of this is about awareness. And, you know, I feel like the theme of all of this today is there's the automatic assumptions that we make, the stories that we tell, the automatic reactivity that we have, that is our least effective strategy. So the thing I like about craft is it's it's a slowing down process. It's like stop and don't just keep doing and doing and doing and doing. Step back, think about things, look at the consequences, make a list, notice things. And, you know, one of the things that that I talk about with the families and the couples that I work with is it's very hard when you're in the state to notice anything positive. And we're talking about natural consequences. Once you're in that state of like, oh, my God, you're torturing me. You're ruining my life. You're horrible. It's very hard. And this is just working regular couples. Right. Um, 
And, and I, you know, a lot of time, like in the Imago work that we do, we, there's this thing called zero negativity where you're really only focusing on the positive and pointing it out. And I, what I found is people had a hell of a time doing that exercise. They were great with giving negative feedback. And so I just, I created this thing called the positivity detective where I was thinking, cause I'm obsessed with Columbo, the 1980s detective. Because he reminds me of me. Um, hey, it's Brooklyn and whatever. Um, but anyway, so so what happened? And he always appeared stupid, but he asked a million questions. OK, and that's what I loved about him. He's like, I don't understand, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so he people thought he was an idiot, but they would answer his questions because they thought he would stu- he was stupid, but he was absolutely totally acquiring information. So this is where I got this idea from. So. It's like, and I do this with my daughter all the time. Who's sixteen? Like I, I yesterday, I said, "Oh, how are you doing with your friend?" She's like, "You're driving me to a sleepover at her house. How do you think I'm doing?" And <laughs> and so I knew that the presumption was that's really a stupid question. I'm like, "Listen, I'm I'm a mother. It is my job to ask stupid questions. I'm just doing my job. You will thank me when you get older. I'm your role model for being a parent." But anyway, what happened was, I think I believe in questions. Number one, stupid questions. And if somebody says it's a stupid question, I'm like, yes, I know. Um, So you claim your stupidity and be proud. But the other thing is that if you're a positivity detective, you spend your entire day acquiring clues. Okay, so like you're noticing things that are microscopic goodness. Okay, and but that's your job because your job is you're going to make a case and you have to look for things that you would totally miss if you weren't a detective. The detectives walk in, they're like, oh, that's interesting that there's a blood splat over there and there's this over there. It's like you're looking and you're like, wow, they just looked up when I walked in the room. I will take that. Thank you for looking up and acknowledging that I walked in the room, you know, or or they their tone was good. Oh, wow. And then you respond to the tone as opposed to the content. There's there's a million things, but your job is to the positive consequences you're going to need to work at because you're not wired when somebody is being so obnoxious to find them. But I will tell you, I call it the power position. If you are looking for the good and you're working on changing yourself, you are in power because then you're not just um, like reacting to all the negative, which is just terrible. So so that's the story with that for me. Be a positivity detective. So I love this. I love the positivity detective. I love this um, this term. And uh, um, I want you to know. So we do similar stuff in West. Um, And in fact, when families first come in, um, oftentimes they come in, they're in crisis. You know, it's they're spilling their guts and they're, you know, they're telling me how horrible their loved one is. And oftentimes, um, you know, we'll listen, we'll listen, we'll listen. And I listen for what can I find in this that they're telling me that's positive. Right. And then I try and spew it back to them. Right. You know what I heard? I heard that your loved one felt comfortable enough to come and talk to you about this. This is, you know, wow, that's a real positive. And it's almost like it's the first positive thing that they've heard about their situation in years. Um, But also, (coughs) so we, we do a lot of this. Also, I do an exercise in rest meetings uh, where we make like a T-sheet 
On the left, we I want them to um, give me all of the uh, like negative comments that we make to our loved ones. But on the right, I want you to list all of the positive things that like it could be, let's say the past week, list all of the positive things that you have said to your loved one. The first time we sat down to do this exercise, I, you know, I'm a former high school teacher. So I, I like, you know, I'll give them lots of time to fill out their sheets. And so I'm just sitting around listening and listening. And I heard them look like they were looking at each other. And I heard someone say, I can't think of one positive. And I, I was like, this is okay. This is good. Then I know what we need to work on. We need to work on finding the positive, right? Because it's impossible that everything is negative all the time. It's just impossible. So this, this became our homework actually over weeks, find that positive. You got to find that positive. So I, I, I think we uh, we think similar, <laughs> even though I may say, no, I disagree. But as it turns out, I think we kind of do agree um, on a lot of what we're talking about. It's stuff that makes sense. <laughs> it does. It does. It, you know, what's interesting, though, is it makes sense. It makes sense maybe to us, maybe um, from training and experience. But I also... Um, my heart goes out to so many families that are struggling and it can be so, um, so daunting. But that's why people shouldn't be doing this alone. You know, you can't do it alone because if you're alone and you're in your head, then nothing pretty comes out of that. It's like, it's so easy to go towards the negative in your head by yourself. So if you're with other people, and that's one of the things I love about the, the group is like, people are so supportive of each other. We acknowledge how hard everybody is working and, and under the circumstances, how well people are doing and right. what they're doing right. And it's very hard for us to do that for ourselves because that's not what, how we're trained or wired. And so the way I think about this is if you look at the people who are dealing with the substances, they're alone in their heads. And that's why things keep getting messier and messier. So if we could be a positive force in that and kind of interrupt the negativity, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I think there's so many ways to do that. And it would be great to have a whole podcast on how to be positive, um, because I think that that requires a massive effort. And it it, it's not it's not one. It's a habit. It's not, it's not, it's, none of us are trained to do that. At least if you came from a functional family, I haven't met you yet. So I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the normal and notice yeah. I put in quotes, the normal family. But it's like I, people say to me about my daughter, like, she's so lucky she has you. And I'm like, oh no, it's the only reason yeah. she knows that she's lucky is I got her help earlier than most people got help. It's like, I totally watched myself screwing my kid up. Right. This is with full awareness, but right. I'm like, okay, good. At least she'll fit into society. Right. Um, right. Right. But also no, I, I, I totally agree with you that, um, that not only, not only is it habit, but I also think that society in general teaches us, especially as becoming parents to be negative. It teaches the whole right? world is that We're it's like, that's what punish. Punish, the, in, punish, the, in, punish. the internet is about negativity. It's like it literally everything is set up 
to to react to negativity. So that's let's be positive. So I think that that's something that we could have a whole session on. Sounds good. That sounds like fun to me. Hot, positive. I think we positive. should do that. There's even evidence that if you're positive, you're more likely to get a positive response. Exactly. Which is craft works, which is why it works so well, right? Because if you're positive all the time, you've got to get positive. And, and I literally, when I started implementing craft with my son, I literally saw his thoughts change. I, I saw him stop multiple times and be like, what, what, right? Like he was expecting me to, um, you know, to say something negative and I came out with something positive or like I relieved him of things like one time I was getting very frustrated in this conversation with him. And I, I was, I can just imagine what my face looked like. And, um, and I stopped myself and I was, and I started walking away and he was like, what, what, you know, Oh, oh you're going to blame me. And I turned to him and I said, no, I said, <laughs> I said, this is not your problem. It's my problem. <laughs> And I said it with this awful look on my face, like, I have to walk away and think about this because this is not something you should be bothered by. It's my problem. And the look, right, the look on his face was like, did she really like, like, she's not going to yell at me. She's going to go off. And, and so I just I'm just going to wrap that for one second because we need to stop. But the. If you are the identified patient or the identified problem, the IP, then your life is ruined. It's not good. And what happens is when we look at our loved ones as the identified problem, then there is that's a trap that they can never get out of. But so the more we look at ourselves and we're like, what's my part of this problem? the more we release them to just focus on themselves and their own issues. Right. So and we're all the problem. And that's what craft is about. What's my part of the problem so that I could do my part of the solution? Right. Totally agree. Period. I'm so glad we're on the same page. (laughs) This is wonderful. Oh, I don't care if we're on the same page. I like arguing. (laughs) (laughs) But this has been wonderful. This was a, a fantastic conversation and I cannot wait until we have another one. So, um, I'm looking forward to recording with you ladies next week. Hey, have a great week. You as well. Bye. Bye, ladies. Bye, Kayla. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, our production team, and Mikael Mouboussin for the original music composition.